Good evening, and welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Tonight, we will be speaking with Gary Graham Hughes, the America's Policy Coordinator, about the Forest Stewardship Council and the greenwashing of the timber industry. We're also going to take a tangential turn into backwoods preparedness. For those of us who spend a lot of time out there, and they could be bikers and hikers, equestrians, foragers, even direct activists, we all need to be prepared, and we all need to know what we're doing when we're out there alone or with friends. That is coming up on this edition of the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Thank you for joining this conversation between myself, Chad Swimmer, and Gary Graham Hughes, MSC. Gary is the America's Policy Coordinator for Biofuel Watch International and the former Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt, California. Today, we are going to have a conversation about three decades of the greenwashing of the timber industry, focusing on the Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC for short. The FSC logo, stamped onto wood products, is recognized worldwide, and like Oregon Tilth or California Certified Organic Farmers, purports to represent to the general public that a product meets consumers' real and genuine concerns for a planet in peril. All large-scale international certification organizations are subject to pressure from industry, government, and the logic of demand, often resulting in watered-down regulations and a lot of hype, but empty promises. The FSC, founded in 1993, claims that its forest products are, and I quote, 100% from well-managed forests of small and community producers. However, watchdog groups have uncovered substantial problems. A February 20, 2018 article from e360.yale.edu by Richard Conniff notes many abuses tolerated by FSC. For instance, wood strip mining in the Russian taiga. Timber harvested from nature preserves, illegally laundered with the FSC logo, illegal logging in Romanian national parks, and other unethical or straight-up criminal activity. Closer to home and completely kosher under FSC guidelines, FSC-certified Green Diamond Resource Company is known for its industrial 40-acre clear-cuts, inexplicably branded sustainable. Humble and Mendocino Redwood Companies, owned by the Fisher family of the Gap, collectively own and log nearly half a million acres, engaging in massive application of herbicides and other unethical and questionable practices. But they have no problem keeping their FSC certification. Gary Graham Hughes has spent thousands of hours following the evolution of the FSC and the accompanying greenwashing of industry that has been an imperative in environmentally conscious states like California. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Doing pretty well, Chad. It's really great to be joining you to do some independent radio. Thanks for having me on with you. Always, always. Can you start by giving us a short briefing on the meeting you had this morning concerning a biofuel plant being built in northern Chile? Oh, certainly. We were talking about this, uh, just how I started my work day working with Biofuel Watch. I have a portfolio of work addressing different bioenergy issues in California, um, liquid biofuels, but also we work a lot around the use of woody biomass for generating electricity, you know, the burning of trees for electricity. And globally, it's a, it's a major trend. So I do a fair amount of work internationally, especially in Latin America. And what we are working on right now is a very worrisome example of a growing trend globally. And that is the conversion of coal 
powered electricity plants to biomass plants, the burning of either straight up wood chips or wood pellets for generating electricity. Uh, this is really worrisome, of course, for those who are attentive to decarbonization because this power plant in the north of Chile is directly tied to all of the mining in Chile that is providing the copper and even the lithium that is so central to everyone's goals for the elect electrification of the transportation sector and such. And, and here we have a French company, Engie, claiming that they're taking an important step towards responding to climate change by converting this coal plant to burning biomass. But we have done some number crunching and found that it would take probably 100,000 hectares of eucalypt plantation to provide feedstock for this power plant for one year. And that's an incredible amount of land that would be required. And of course, this ties in really tightly to the reason why you invited me to join you today as we're working very closely with partners in Chile that are challenging the way that the Forest Stewardship Council is being used to provide a green stamp of approval for these monoculture exotic tree species plantations for making pulp, making paper, um, and as we're seeing increasingly for being used as feedstock for power plants. Before we get into the FSC, I'm curious that you've done also another bit of number crunching, and it seems like the biofuel, biomass generation of electricity using wood is actually more carbon intensive than burning coal? Certainly. But at the stack, it basically is a losing proposition to burn biomass. There's actually more uh, carbon dioxide emissions per kilowatt hour than burning coal. I mean, on, on the face of it, you can imagine the coal is a, is a much denser, tighter uh, you know, resource feedstock for burning. Um, you know, of course, there's very serious heavy metals and other toxins that come with coal. And we certainly aren't proposing that we continue to burn coal. Uh, but of course, the CO2 emissions from burning biomass are not uh, adequately, adequately accounted for because of international global carbon accounting regimes. So ostensibly, it's considered carbon neutral uh, and that the carbon emissions at the stack aren't uh, counted as carbon emissions, which is not doing us any favors because the carbon's ending up in the atmosphere anyway. Um, but what you really have to be concerned about, and that's here in California as well, and, and we saw this with the wood pellet plant there that got installed in Calpella by, uh, you know, the Mendocino Forest Products Company, which is of Mendocino Redwood Company, that there are very severe concerns with particulate matter contamination and PM, there's no safe level of PM. So converting to biomass carries with it a lot of really serious social and environmental harms and the climate benefits are essentially illusory. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely another form of greenwashing when you have a word like bio, biomass, you know, think of in French, biologique is organic and it makes it sound like it's a, a good thing. Certainly, you'll see a lot of references now to a bioeconomy, you know, this idea of bioenergy and, and, and this, you know, oh, hey, it's natural. It's got to be okay. But we're finding also that this increased demand of wood for burning, for electricity in this unfortunate pattern of coal plants converting to biomass is really having devastating impacts on native forests. And in particular, like the case studies that we really work on from Biofuel Watch is we're really trying to make visible what's happening in British Columbia and the logging of old growth and native forest by the company Drax, uh, which owns this massive coal, now biomass plant in Yorkshire in the UK. It's the biggest polluter in all of the UK. And they're also soaking up an awful lot of wood pellets coming out of the Southeast United States. We're talking about very unique and rare wet forests all along the coast there. And oftentimes the wood pellet manufacturing plants are being sited and operated in real environmental justice communities, uh, very 
marginalized, impoverished, and largely communities of color in states like Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, Mississippi. So yeah, this conversion to biomass is a real problem. And the Forest Stewardship Council has a a role in this, unfortunately, because of the way their standards uh, have been bent over time and the way some of the biggest operators are relying on this stamp of approval to suggest that the bioenergy that they're producing is, you know, quote unquote, sustainable. Mm -hmm. Well, can you back us up then and tell us what exactly is the Forest Stewardship Council and how did it come into being? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, Chad, too. I think in this work, for me in particular, on the North Coast uh, of California and even internationally, uh, a lot of my work, I feel, is to try to keep the history of the environmental movement from going down the memory hole. So in a nutshell, you have to recognize the Forest Stewardship Council, these types of forest certification schemes as being market-based approaches. And in the 1990s, what we were confronting is the, you know, the early stages of the crisis in forest governance, which is still happening now. I really try to emphasize for folks to understand that there's a crisis in forest governance, and that this is why we're confronting so many threats to our uh, forest landscapes. But in the, in the 90s, the idea was, well, if the government isn't actually going to regulate these companies, the way that they should be regulated, well, then consumers are going to pitch in. We're going to use this market-based measure where uh, there'll be uh, some standards established to try to define what is sustainable forestry. And the Forest Stewardship Council was one of the first and most important of these efforts. And the idea then was that, well, if governments aren't going to put into law the regulations that are necessary to protect our forests, then we will do so through, you know, the market. We'll rely on our purchasing power to do so. And so that's basically how the Forest Stewardship Council started as a response to the crisis in forest governance in the 1990s and try to create another avenue for exercising some pressure on uh, wood product providers to see them operate at a standard that offered some semblance of hope for our forests and our forest-dependent communities into the future. And who actually started it? Well, I mean, if you want to get into it, you know, in the North Coast of California, there's actually quite a few folks who were on the ground floor, as it were, of establishing some of the early parameters around smart wood and other items. But then eventually it was largely a coalition of different non-governmental organizations and some of the early industry adapters who came together and created this not-for-profit organization that's the Forest Stewardship Council. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. We are having a conversation with Gary Graham Hughes, the America's Policy Coordinator of Biofuel Watch International, about the Forest Stewardship Council. But what does it mean for a timber holder, timber producer to have an FSC certification? Well, now, all these years later, that's a, that's a really good question. When it first started, the idea was to give something of a market advantage to the smaller producer or you know, even a medium-sized or larger producer if they were willing to operate at these high standards that the Forest Stewardship Council originally represented. And so if on the market, you could say, well, look, this smaller producer is operating by these standards, you can have confidence that their product is being delivered to the consumer with a a level of practices that you can have confidence is treating the, the forest with the respect it deserves, then people would be willing to pay that price premium on that product. Unfortunately, what's happened over time, Chad, and we've just seen it constantly all the way through time, and it comes now to this instance that we'll, we'll touch on in more depth eventually about how the FSC now is toying with the idea of lifting a prohibition on the use of genetically engineered trees. What we've seen over time is a weakening of the Forest Stewardship Council. For instance, as a case in point, then in the, in the late 90s, it was very controversial when it occurred But because of this confluence of interest, 
non-governmental organizations, industry types, and, and some distributors, people who are making products available to the consumer, there was a move to make FSC available to certify these monoculture exotic tree species plantations in places like Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, even to some degree here in the United States. That was considered a real watering down then of the standards and a, and a real sort of acquiescence, as it were, to the industrial powers that control the, the global forest sector. So that was an early example of the, the watering down of FSC. There's more examples and there's some in the Redwood region I'd like to get into, but I, I think it really reflected that those who were in charge of the FSC and really looking at the business side of the FSC felt compelled somehow to get as much product as they could under the umbrella of the FSC. And instead of trying to do that by keeping the really high standards, they said, well, we can get more acres under the label if we basically weaken the standards to let more operators in. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for all of that, Gary. I'm actually curious, what can a producer in Northern California do? I mean, 40 acre clear cuts, is that sustainable or considered sustainable? Well, unfortunately, over time, then the FSC has become of less value to smaller producers. Um, it still has a certain cachet, as it were, a certain reputation, and you'll still see advertisements on television for the Forest Stewardship Council. But shortly after the opening of the door was granted to these monoculture plantations on an international level, we saw here in the Redwood region that some bigger actors started getting on board. So one of the early actors on a big level on FSC in Northern California was Mendocino Redwood Company. And ostensibly early on, they were demonstrating a higher level of commitment to standards that really reflected what some might want to generously define as sustainable forestry. Uh, what happened though then is that Mendocino Redwood Company then acquired Humboldt Redwood Company in, in 2008. And there started to be a, an increasing level of pressure to expand the FSC brand in the Redwood region. And the really dramatic change, the watershed change that I saw in my work on FSC over all these years was initially an effort by the FSC to water down their standards for certifying Redwood out of the North Coast here. And MRC and HRC make a lot of really big gestures about how they don't clear cut. And though anyone who's looked really closely at their timber harvest plans and see how the definitions can be twisted and turned and variable retention can turn into a pretty extensive form of clear cutting. The, the big thing then was in 2011 and 2012, FSC made efforts to change their guidance and their standards so that clear cutting would be allowed in the Redwoods. And then it was in 2012 and 2013 that Green Diamond Resources Company got certified by the Forest Stewardship Council, which was a major setback for the FSC because basically they allowed Green Diamond, ex-Simpson Timber, to be able to use the FSC brand without having to really, in any remarkable way, change their practices. And they continue to this day to clear cut. We know, you know, the Redwood Temperate Rainforest Ecosystem is potentially the most carbon-dense ecosystem on the planet. We know that we're facing a climate crisis, but how, however it goes, the FSC went ahead and, and gave Green Diamond their green stamp of approval. And here we are today, continuing to see how the standards of the FSC are getting whittled down and weakened as time goes by. Well, I had heard that at this point for a small producer, that it doesn't actually mean that you're selling your, your wood for any more money. And it used to be an actual real advantage. And a lot of these small producers do want to actually log sustainably. It makes me wonder if the whole point now in history is to convince politicians that the timber industry is doing sustainable regenerative forestry. Well, certainly, I think this comes back to this concept of governance. How are our forests governed? And even the best anarchists amongst us agree that we, we need to regulate the timber industry. 
And unfortunately, what we've seen with the prominence of the FSC over these last couple of decades is a, is a reliance on the consumer to, to make the decisions and then to hold these companies in check. But the standards have been weakened. The market with FSC product has been swamped then with FSC certified product that's coming off of, for instance, clear cuts from Green Diamond. And so the smaller producer that's attempting perhaps to log from below and to really increase the carbon stocks on their lands while still doing some low profile harvest, they're not getting the premium that you mentioned. That originally the Forest Stewardship Council certification was intended to provide, but the FSC weakened down their standards to get more acres under their umbrella. And they basically told the smaller producers that, you know, it's not that important to us whether or not you're willing to do truly sustainable forestry. Recently, I've really been looking a lot of conflict of interest between the various regulatory agencies, the timber industry, and also the FSC. And one person is Mike Janai, who was on the, I think he is an MRC policy director. He is on the board of forestry. And you mentioned that he was on the board of FSC. Can you delve into this for us? For a long time, I mean, Mike Janai is a actor in forest politics in California that merits tremendous scrutiny. People should be looking really closely at the different roles that he's had and, and these questions of, of conflicts of interests and also demanding some transparency in terms of decisions that have been made and how it occurred. For instance, one element that doesn't get a lot of discussion that's tied into the certification of Green Diamond Resources Company is how shortly after Green Diamond got their FSC certification, they closed their remaining mills. So they had a mill in Corvell and they also had a mill on the shores of Humboldt Bay and they got out of the milling business. And now all of the redwood off of those 400,000 plus acres that belong to Green Diamond go through the HRC, the Humboldt Redwood Company mill in Scotia. Oh. And this is, you know, really, a, it's a business plan that Mike Janai was responsible for implementing. And it was totally untransparent when Green Diamond was pursuing their FSC certification. There was a series of public meetings and an opportunity to participate. And Green Diamond never made it clear at that point in time that they were planning on closing their mills. But it was obvious that the plan right then was to do whatever they could to get Green Diamond under the FSC banner so they could run all of their timber through the mill in Scotia and have it come out the other end of the Dr. Seuss machine with the FSC stamp on it. Yeah, And this is a, a major shift in how the timber industry operates, the economics of the timber industry, the questions of land tenure, the equitable distribution, as it were, of economic opportunity and economic wealth in, in the bioregion. And there was no transparent public discussion about development. And, and unfortunately, some major environmental interest in the North Coast also decided to just turn, kind of turn a blind eye uh, to what was going on. And many, many stakeholders in the restoration forestry, quote unquote, restoration forestry community as well have kind of decided that they didn't really want to stand up and insist that the FSC uh, maintain strict standards. So that's the dilemma that we're faced with right now. And there's other things happening, I think, that you wanted to get into as well. well. It's, I think at this point, at least in Mendocino County, which is considered a pretty activist, progressive county, the FSC is invisible. And right. most of us don't know a thing about it and don't know how important it is in this regulatory agency industry kind of a corrupt bedfellows relationship. And where I'm getting at is, is that, so about two years ago, when the movement to change the management of Jackson Demonstration State Forest was getting going, somebody came up to me, a forester, and said, well, you know that Jackson is operating, that CAL FIRE is operating on Mendocino Redwood Company's FSC certificate. 
and that MRC is trying really hard to get them off of it because they're kind of sick of it. And I said, no, I didn't even know what that FSC certificate was. I looked into it a little more and started to see this kind of vicious circle of, so the, the Jackson has the Jackson Advisory Group, which is an advisory body, and their recommendations are taken with a grain of salt. But there's people on it whose recommendations are more powerful than others. And one is John Anderson, who is of Mendocino Redwood Company. And so JDSF, which is run by CAL FIRE, CAL FIRE, the regulatory agency which oversees the timber industry, is reviewing and stamping an approval on MRC and Green Diamond's timber harvest plans. And then they are also holding the FSC certificate that Jackson is operating under or was until very recently. It seemed like there was a lot of conflict of interest there. Can you talk about that? Well, I'd like to talk about that. I think it's really important what you're bringing up for listeners, especially on the North Coast, but I think across California to be looking closely at what's happening with the timber industry and especially timber operators in the Redwood region. Mendocino Redwood Company has terminated under their own decision this resource manager certificate. So the idea of the resource manager certificate is that Mendocino Redwood Company can get their own lands certified, but then for a chain of custody purposes, if they want to buy timber from other landowners or be sourcing timber, for instance, from Jackson Demonstration State Forest, and they want all of that timber to go through their mill and then at the end be considered Forest Stewardship Council sustainable with that stamp, then they they needed to have a, a, a manager's certification for the lands that don't belong to them. The fact that they've terminated this certificate should be setting off alarms for anybody who's ever worked on sustainable forestry issues because it exposes how bad the situation has been in Jackson over these last 10 years. And that the company isn't willing to stand up and take feedback from the public to know about how they could manage Jackson better so that it would actually be still certified as FSC tells us that they're really not wanting to work with the community or with the consumers who they're dependent upon. And they're just kind of hoping this whole thing will go away. But it reveals some real serious problems with the Forest Stewardship Council. And CAL FIRE is at the center of it. Because if Mendocino Redwood Company cannot depend upon how CAL FIRE is managing Jackson to ensure that the standards of FSC are being met, how can the rest of us have any confidence that CAL FIRE is adequately regulating timber harvest on the private lands that are certified by the Forest Stewardship Council. And so then this also takes us immediately to why perhaps FSC may be invisible to people on the North Coast, but why outside of the North Coast, it's incredibly important, is to flag another crisis in FSC was the logging of the old growth on Rainbow Ridge by Humboldt Redwood Company. Yeah, And this is an issue that really exposed how the FSC standard does not stand up to follow through on their own principles around protecting what they call, call high conservation value forest. But this is a, a tremendous controversy in Humboldt County. And it was such a big deal, actually, that a guy named Ron Jarvis, who's a bigwig with Home Depot, came all the way out to try to massage the situation because outside of Humboldt County, it was becoming really uh, kind of an acute situation that the FSC standard was being exposed for not holding up strong standards of sustainability, quote unquote, and for allowing old forest to get logged. So most of the FSC product that Mendocino Redwood Company and Humboldt Redwood Company sell on a national level actually goes through the Home Depot. And having that FSC stamp is absolutely critical to Home Depot to continue with their greenwashing of these major timber operators. So it's a smelly onion 
And there's a lot of uh, layers that are kind of rotten once you start unpeeling it. And I hope that conversations like this, Chad, encourage listeners to learn more about FSC and, and to have some skepticism about it. And then to recognize once again, that markets are not delivering the governance that we need. And we need to insist that there be strong regulations and that we can secure support from state authorities to hold these operators account. Mm-hmm. And this idea that markets are going to solve all of our problems, you know, the invisible hand of the market is really dependent on the consumer having good information as to what uh, the provenance of what they're buying is. Oh, certainly. Um, you know, having information is uh, critical to make good decisions as a consumer, but it is also kind of an outcome of the last couple of decades of this slow and steady sort of uh, permeation of environmental work with this idea that markets-based solutions are what we're going to pursue. And and we've seen that now bleed into actual state-driven mechanisms that are also markets-based. And uh, a hashtag I use on social media all the time is a hashtag markets will not save us. So... We, we definitely need to go back in some ways to our original roots as environmentalists and, and question how it is that all this markets-based thinking came in to, to dominate so much of what's being relied upon for environmental governance. Yeah. This is Chad Swimmer, and you're listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour, coming at you from KZYX, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. As I put this show together, KZYX is in the middle of a pledge drive, but whatever station you're listening to this on, and whenever it might be, public radio needs your support. To help out this station, go to kzyx.org and click the red Donate Now button, because public radio is a pillar of democracy. So Gary, you were talking about how carbon offset dollars have been used to finance monoculture tree plantations. Can you elaborate? Well, certainly it's kind of a complicated matter, but it's tied into the proliferation of all of these net zero sorts of targets that are being set by different corporations. I mean, for decades, we've been working on just trying to teach the public that a plantation is not a forest, that a monoculture Exotic tree species plantation has no qualities of forest. But with net zero and this kind of carbon supremacy, all this focus ostensibly on sequestering carbon, then there have been many instances now where the establishment and maintenance of these plantations is being financed with carbon credit schemes in that a polluter can claim that, well, the pollution I just caused over here with my power plant is being compensated for by the growth in this rapidly growing exotic tree species plantation in Chile. And it's a real problem because it's a very harmful way to manage land, establishing these plantations. But now we're seeing with this focus on net zero that the establishment of plantations are being given a whole new sort of greenwashed type of justification. Oh yeah, they're they're good for sequestering carbon, which has also been proven to be basically a lie because these plantations are harvested in short term and then converted into paper or burned as biomass. So yeah, it's, it's really a problem the way that net zero has put a whole new wave of support into the development of these monoculture plantations. Hmm. So let's switch subjects to this genetically engineered tree thought. This to me is just horrendous that we could be seeing forests of genetically engineered trees. And how has the Forest Stewardship Council come to possibly embrace genetically engineered trees? Yeah, well, this is a really interesting line of work for Biofuel Watch. Biofuel Watch is a, a small organization, international in scope, 
And here in the United States, we actually operate under the fiscal sponsorship and very closely with partners of an organization called Global Justice Ecology Project. And Global Justice Ecology Project for several decades now has been working to put public attention on the dangers of genetically engineered trees. Now, under FSC, the standards of FSC early on, as I was saying before, were, were pretty strict and they've been weakened over time. But this around GE trees has remained pretty firm. For a couple of decades now, the Forest Stewardship Council has had a prohibition on the actual commercial use of genetically engineered trees. And this has helped prevent the proliferation of these trees because the interests who are most dedicated to bringing genetically engineered trees into use in a commercial way are those interests in the global south, especially who are working on this monoculture, exotic tree species plantation model. Mm -hmm. uh, so Global Justice Ecology Project and the Stop GE Trees campaign over the last couple of months really has been circulating a letter with partners to get civil society organizations from around the world to sign on to a declaration insisting that the Ford Stewardship Council stand by their prohibition on the commercial use of GE trees. Because the threat is that in the second week of October, there will be a international assembly of the Forest Stewardship Council. And there are a couple of resolutions at play that if they were to be voted down, would remove that prohibition on the use of genetically engineered trees. And what we know will happen is that big interests, like really huge companies, like a company called Suzano from Brazil, has millions of acres of land dedicated to these monoculture plantations. They have a variety of eucalypt that has already been licensed in Brazil that if FSC were to lift their prohibition, since Suzano is certified by FSC, then they would have the prerogative then of massive planting of this genetically engineered tree whose main quality just to be clear about it, this tree in particular is that it's essentially Roundup ready. Huh. So, yeah. So if you can imagine, then I, I think a lot of listeners are pretty aware of the dangers of exposures to glyphosate or the cocktail of ingredients that go into Roundup. Uh, the public health and environmental risks are, are tremendous. So, yeah, there's a, a real effort right now to get the Forest Stewardship Council to re retain this prohibition. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens because it, it reflects the tension between more environmentally and quote-unquote sustainably minded foresters with the desires of the really, really big actors that have succeeded in getting the FSC certification. So I don't really know what's going to happen this meeting in Indonesia It'll be interesting to find out, but it's definitely a, a watershed moment for the future of the FSC. Is there any way that consumers and the public can comment on this? There has been an opportunity to provide comment through a declaration that Global Justice Ecology Project was circulating. I don't know, though, that by the time people hear this show that there'll still be an immediate opportunity to engage. But we got more than 90 groups from around the world to sign on to this declaration to call on the FSC to hold, uphold their GE trees prohibition. Are there any other actions you can recommend for consumers to take to counteract industry greenwashing efforts? Well, certainly, you know, getting educated about it is really important. So it is important to distinguish between the different forest certification schemes. One that's very prevalent in the United States that was created actually as a response by industry to the grassroots efforts to develop the Forest Stewardship Council is one called the Sustainable Forestry Initiative or SFI. And you'll see their cert on paper bags or milk cartons or all kinds of stuff. I mean, if FSC is dubious, SFI is just a joke. So learning about these different certification schemes is, is really important. 
for locals who are dealing on the front lines with the uh, environmental harms arising from the timber industry, I, I think just trying to be aware of which operators are relying on FSC and learning more about how those processes work. But the FSC is also really designed to be pretty shielded yeah. from public participation. Even though there are avenues that exist with the FSC that do not exist, for instance, with the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. So hypothetically, what could be a better model for consumers who might want an actual meaningful certification? It's clearly a question of governance. And this is where I think we were also somewhat sabotaged by the focus on FSC because it sucked up a lot of energy over time to developing a standard to you know, use the power of the consumer to influence industry when what we really needed to be doing was responding to the crisis in governance in terms of how there's complete regulatory capture, for instance. Cal Fire basically belongs to the timber industry, for instance. And ultimately, I think relying on these certification schemes to protect our forests is, has proven to be a little bit of a pipe dream. And though I certainly suggest that people stay involved and ostensibly stay committed to seeing that FSC have really strong standards, in some ways that boat has already left the dock. And I think what really needs to happen is what's been happening, for instance, with this spectacular community movement around Jackson Demonstration State Forest, and that's to get, get the government agencies to actually start to deal with this stuff in a, in a real way. So I, I think regulation, improved regulation, and probably some serious reform of the regulatory agencies is going to be necessary. It's the only way because we've seen that the market-based schemes, these market-based mechanisms, though they might have offered some promise at one point in time, have really gotten out of our hands and are, have almost become a barrier to securing the change that we need. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for all of your hard work and your information. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'm just really stoked to join you, Chad. It's great to have these kinds of conversations. Thanks to people who've stayed with us for the whole time. And I just really want to, again, offer my thanks and praises to all the people who've weighed in to move the needle uh, around what's going on with the state-owned public forest, uh, Jackson Demonstration State Forest, the move for POMO land back, everything that's happening in Western Mendocino County is truly transformational. And I hope people stay motivated and keep working at it because we've seen the way that the industry is responding, that they, they understand that change is in the air and they're going to be obstinate in resisting that change, but it's our job to force it upon them. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a conversation with Gary Graham Hughes, the America's Policy Coordinator for Biofuel Watch International. And we've been discussing the Forest Stewardship Council and three decades of greenwashing by the timber industry. Thanks again, Gary. Thank you, Chad. A last-minute update on this GE trees issue. This last week, the General Assembly of the Forest Stewardship Council met in Indonesia, and tragically, they voted down the motion to keep the FSC's ban on GE trees. Right now, they're in a learning period, they call it. They haven't actually okayed genetically engineered trees, but the pressure is on. If you would like to stay up to date on this, go to stopgetrees.org. You can sign up for updates, the latest news, and you can go to their Take Action page where there's a petition to sign and other options for you. This issue of genetically engineered trees is a huge and horrible threat. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour.
we are going to seriously switch gears for a conversation with Mark Jensen about backwoods preparedness. Mark is a retired engineer and medical device designer and an avid mountain biker. He is one of the few people I see when I'm out in the woods who is more prepared than I am, really for whatever eventuality. Our conversation will be geared towards anyone who spends time out in the woods, mountain bikers, walkers, mushroom foragers, equestrians, direct activists even, anyone who spends a substantial amount of time in places where people don't necessarily pass by every day. Alone or in a group, an injury can have unforeseen consequences. Do you know how to dress a wound? Can you splint a broken bone? What happens if you run into somebody in anaphylactic shock? Can you get help in the short period of time that might be available to you? Can you even figure out exactly where you are? We'll answer a couple of these questions and hopefully lead you in the direction of answering more of them. Oh, Mark, thank you for taking the time to join us on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. How are you tonight? Uh, doing pretty good. What motivated you to travel so prepared? Uh, I've just seen enough stuff that you know it's going to happen eventually. So mm -hmm. you, you want to take care of it, to be able to take care of it. Uh, a lot of it's improvising. So, you know, being able to improvise with what you got is yeah. a big part of the, the training there for the wilderness first responder, making making do with what you've got. Uh, so I just got recertified for uh, Knowles uh, Wilderness First Responder. Highly recommend the class. Uh, mm -hmm. Initial class was two weeks, um, including a weekend, uh, you know, eight, eight to five every day. So it was a big, long class. And then uh, you get recertified for uh, it's it's a two day recertification every two years, mm -hmm. but there's a lot to memorize, memorizing and practice, 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 dealing with all kinds of you know medical emergencies. The the difference is like if you were an EMT, my understanding is uh, you know you you're basically bundling people up to get them to the hospital. You're not making decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is with a wilderness first responder, you know you're you're not anywhere where you're going to expect rescue anytime soon. And so you need to be able to make decisions and triage situations. Uh, so within the, within the bounds of your training, make, make some decisions about how to deal with uh, medical emergencies. It's, well, what it's, do you carry with you in your day trip backpack? Uh, well, so the number one thing is ASP uh, mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, a lot of folks are old and, you know, or, or, or getting up there and, with COVID, it's probably a big thing is uh, heart attacks and stroke are, are always, you know, the big killers for um, for folks. And so, uh, especially with activities, having some aspirin uh, to deal with a heart attack or stroke is is probably my number one thing. You know, there's a lot of things you can improvise with, but you, you can't really improvise with that. So I've got some little aspirin uh, foil packets. So it's the powdered aspirin. So you can get it on somebody's gums if they've got a heart attack or stroke. Mm -hmm. uh, for the longest time, I was kind of worried about, for us folks that aren't doctors, kind of differentiating between stroke and heart attack. There, there are some signs and symptoms that can overlap, uh, especially you know, when you're under stress. And I was always a little concerned about the difference between a hemorrhagic stroke where you've got bleeding in the brain versus ischemic stroke uh, where you've got a clot uh, shutting off the arteries in your brain. But I've read some meta-analysis and they've uh, shown that uh, aspirin, if, if you've got ischemic uh, stroke, uh, aspirin will definitely help with that quite a bit, um, but it won't really hurt too bad if you've got a hemorrhagic stroke, bleeding in the brain like an aneurysm or something. So there was always kind of a little bit of concern with uh, giving somebody aspirin and you don't, especially if they've got stroke symptoms. Uh, so being able to uh, not not worry about whether it's a hemorrhagic stroke and you're giving them aspirin because you know obviously the concern would have been that you know they would you would have increased the amount the amount of bleed out but the literature seems to show that um, that aspirin even if you've got a hemorrhagic stroke is isn't that deleterious um, but it has a huge advantage and the other thing is with stroke the majority of cases are hemorrhagic so mm -hmm. you know and there's no way you're going to be able to figure that out in the field so. Having aspirin is definitely like the, my number one go-to. Uh, about 15 years ago, had an acquaintance whose husband was hiking in Russian Gulf State Park and pretty far out and had a heart attack, started chewing on some aspirin. And the doctor said probably that was the reason why he survived. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's time is, time is tissue. Time is, you know, cardiac cells, time is brain cells. And so, you know, 
being able to react quickly for a heart attack and stroke is, is pretty important. I have to clarify that this is not doctor's advice we are giving. This is the literature, and I myself carry aspirin with me in case something were to happen to me out there. You know, bleeding, uh, bleeding is obviously kind of the big, you know, emergency must respond to kind of things. But the thing about bleeding is there's a lot of stuff you carry with you, you know, shirts, jackets, all kinds of stuff that you can use to control bleeding. But I do carry quick clot in my my fanny pack these days, uh, just to give me a little bit of backup. Mm -hmm. and I've got, you know, various bandages and stuff uh, to help with, uh, you know, puncture wounds and whatnot. Um, so those those are the kind of two big emergencies that I'm, you know, the two acute, you know, move fast and respond quickly kind of emergencies that I carry stuff for. I also carry Benadryl for, uh, you know, bee stings or any other kind of allergic reactions. I'm not, you know, I, I don't have a prescription for the uh, EpiPen, but I do carry uh, Benadryl. It's uh, slower acting, but it's at least I've got something to respond. If somebody goes into an anaphylactic shock, uh, we've got Benadryl with us. So those are kind of the, kind of the big emergency kind of things that I, that I carry with. I've also heard this, that actually a lot of first responders carry liquid Benadryl or liquid Zyrtec, which works quite as well as EpiPens in many cases. So I'm carrying a, a cell phone, but if you've got weak signal, texting works quite well, um, you know, and it, it will send a, send a message even when a voice connection won't work. And the, uh, the county, the Mendocino County now will respond to 911 calls over text messages. So you could text 911 on your cell phone and obviously I haven't tried this or luckily haven't needed to try it out here but um but you could text 911 with cell phone and even with spotty cell phone service get some emergency response yeah. so that's a key thing for people to know is is having a you know it, it, like in an earthquake landlines you know maybe down and you know you're not going to have a lot of signal for cell phones but texting will go through when voice calls will not and that's a good thing to remember so I've been traveling for a number of years now, you know, many miles out with a personal locator beacon. And this is a um, ocean rescue, go find me beacon. But more recently, Garmin has a device that that will locate you and it doesn't need cell reception. It's all on the satellite network. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely very interested in doing that. Uh, so, you know, if you've got the Garmin devices, they, they seem like a, a very reasonable investment. You know, the other thing is that the Apple phone has just come out the latest version and supposedly will let you connect up with a satellite as well. So, you know, for, for us folks that are out in the middle, middle of the wilderness, it definitely seems like a, a highly recommended device, mm -hmm. especially, you know, with these hazardous recreational activities. You know, if you're out mountain biking or something that's got a high probability of, of getting injured, um, it'd be nice to be able to reach folks. In the future, I will likely do a more in-depth look at these kind of personal locator beacons and garments because they can truly save your lives. The personal locator beacons, you have to be conscious to activate, but the Garmin and hopefully this new iPhone app will basically be something that people can find you even if you're not able to find them. There's a Wilderness First Aid class. It's shorter than the Wilderness First Responder. Would you recommend that? I'd recommend getting anything you can. Um, you know, it's it's a huge time commitment for the wilderness first responder. Um, I, when I was taking classes, like, man, we really should be teaching this to high school kids. You know, I've used a lot of the stuff I've learned at home. It's not only just an emergency; it's just kind of day to day. It's for for our family. It's avoided probably three or four trips to the emergency room. Well, I know how to deal with this. <laughs> you can deal with it just so many different things that you could be dealing with, you know, gastric problems, broken legs, you know, psychological issues, yeah. all kinds of things. Since my wilderness first aid class I had two situations where I needed to assess somebody and um, both of them were more than five miles out off a road. And both times I was pretty happy to see that, that the people were, how to put it, I followed the procedures and I was glad that I learned them and I helped the people out. And one was pretty challenging to get out. The other one, my first aid kit came in handy, but you know, they were pretty cut up, but I could tell that they hadn't had a concussion and it was a mountain bike crash and nice to, 
to know that you can help somebody else out. I just came around the corner and there they were. Right. You know, it's, that's the thing about, you know, mountain biking or even hiking in the, in the woods around here is, is you don't know who's going to be helping you out. So I always make it a point of saying hello and howdy because, you know, you may be helping those people out or they may be helping you out. You know, we're going to be relying on each other for mutual aid because, you know, it, it may be a long time before anybody who gets a salary is going to be coming out to be an, an emergency, you know, in terms of emergency response. Yeah. How do you look at yourself out there? Um, so I've memorized the the trails and the topography. I spent a lot of time looking at the maps and and going over stuff and and spending time i my wife tells me i never get lost so uh for me it's uh not not too bad um you know sometimes with the trail names changing and the roads and stuff you, you might not get it right but in terms of the overall lay of the land um you know i've got that 3d spatial skills to kind of memorize where stuff is mm-hmm. um, you know it's it's by the big redwood with a you know gash out of it you know, there, there are other folks that have a harder time. You know, my wife doesn't uh, recognize stuff the way, same way I do. You know, it's definitely a, a different skill set. And so, you know, I, I have to be conscious of, of some folks aren't as good in terms of recognizing the topography and, and stuff as, as other folks. So there's definitely some skill involved with that. Um, but that's the other thing with the Jackson State Forest. I, you know, around here, you know, I was pleased to actually see today the signs going in on the trails. Um, you know, I saw the one at the top of Observatory Trail and the top of uh, Forest History that uh, just had been placed by uh, Cal Fire with the trail names. So that's a help. But I make a point of stopping anybody out that looks even remotely like they may not know, you know, if they're new to the area or whatnot and say, you know, howdy, you know where all the trails are? Would you like some help with the getting around? And and so I, I make it a point of introducing myself and, you know, just make, just double check and make sure they know where they are and where they're going. And maybe there's another good trail that they should go check out. There's some pretty stuff to go look at. And yeah. So I, I make a point of it to, to introduce myself just, you know, to, to help folks. Mm-hmm. You know, especially, you know, when the fog rolls in the Jack State Forest, it's really easy to get lost out there. You know, it's dense and dense and foggy and, and you can't see the sun. So it, it's definitely navigating is all could, could always be a challenge. It's especially bad when you're mushroom hunting and you're looking down for a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. When I've been up in the north end of Jackson and then also exploring in central Oregon, I've been using a program called Avensa and you can, it's a, um, I've never had any problem with reception, no matter where I've been. And I always can find myself, but you have to download the proper map and you can buy them for like a dollar a piece online from Gazetteer. And those are, that's not hard to use. And it's really important to be able to know where you actually are. Yeah. I've, I've got a bunch of uh, GPS maps and, and I do carry my cell phone with me. I mean, you know, at least you may not have cell coverage, but you've got GPS to figure out where the heck you are. So those, those are definitely good tools. Do you carry a battery pack with your for your phone with you? Uh, no, but I watch my battery pretty intently. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, if I was out for longer periods of time, I would. And, I, and I've got several, but I, you know, I, I watch it. And that, that's the issue with the, you know, relying on the electronic devices is making sure they're charged up and whatnot. So it's, it's part of, you know, this, the safety check before you go off is like, is my cell phone charged or my GPS charged? And there, you know, there are some things that you need to do to check to make sure you're you know, you're good to go. I've got water. I've got a little food. I've got a, some of the things I carry, I always make sure I've got a jacket. I also have a, um, a Mylar, you know, space blanket kind of poncho, you know, for shock or a rainstorm or whatnot, some kind of backup shelter, mm-hmm. kind of space blanket, kind of poncho, a, a jacket, a very thin nylon shell, and then the first aid kit. And that's kind of the basic minimums that I carry with. Yeah, I my backpack is pretty big, but I'm a type one diabetic, and I, you know, I try to travel with everything I need. I always bring extra sugar. The, the emergency blanket is really important. I've started to carry um, electrolyte tablets because I've had this situation myself and with other people that your blood pressure can go really low, or your electrolytes can get really off on a hot day, and that is life threatening. And so it's 
something where I'll, you know, I'll give it to somebody or I'll take it myself and hopefully it'll help out. Salt has been really important on the hot days inland. And I always carry some painkillers with me in case I run into somebody or myself where a bone gets broken and I might be stuck for a number of hours in a situation where I'm in drastic pain. Uh, they've done a bunch of clinical studies and Tylenol and Advil, 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol and 800 milligrams of Advil has the same e efficacy as opioids in terms of pain relief. So that if somebody does have, you know, breaks a bone that you can, you've got something that you can give them and relieve the stress. And that's a big thing, right? I mean, what, what you want to do is you, you're, you're a bridge to, you know, better medical care. You know, you're, you're not the be all end all. You're just a bridge. Mm -hmm. So if you can give some, some pain relief so people can focus on, you know, getting out of a bad situation, that's, that's huge. It should be noted that the NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are basically aspirin, ibuprofen, and naproxen, even though they are over-the-counter drugs, do have some serious side effects that they cause over 100,000 hospitalizations and over 16,000 deaths in the U.S. a year. Acetaminophen, Tylenol, also has problems, more of an attack on your liver. But in the case of wilderness first aid, they are pretty much irreplaceable. So you want to walk into a situation, be very calm, collected here. I can help you with this. I can help you with this, you know, and then let's, you know, call first, you know, call 911 and, and get some help on the way. And in the meantime, I'm going to, you know, make you feel as comfortable as possible. Uh, that's your goal is to be the bridge to better medical care. That's the other thing that I carry these days, especially for mountain biking is uh, I carry a, a surgical scrub brush that's preloaded with uh, the antibiotics. So I, I used to do a lot of surgery. Uh, you know, I used to develop surgical procedures. So I used to scrub in a lot. And so we would wash our hands with these little scrub brushes. They've got little nylon bristles on one side and a sponge that's loaded up with the antibiotic on the other side, you know, and so it's, you know, you scrub each surface of your hand and your fingers, you know, five, five strokes for each one. And then, you know, you go through the whole thing for scrubbing and for surgical procedure. But these little brushes were, it's like, I, I saw that and it's like, after getting road rash and all that stuff for all these days, it's like, oh yeah, this would be great. So, um, you know, the last thing you want is, you know, some kind of, you know, MRSA or antibiotic resistant, you know, back, you know, some kind of infection from a, you know, from a laceration. And so these things have been really good for now. Anytime I get cut around the house, I, I pull out one of these things, open it up, I, I wet it out a little bit and soap up the 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 cut or whatever and then scrub it to get all the dirt out and it's preloaded with the antibiotic so that uh, you know so they can kill any any buggies that are on my skin surface yeah so those have been a real game changer especially for you know folks like us that you know mountain bike or 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 if you're you're working actually you know if you were in construction or something that'd be a huge thing for for that kind of stuff you know to to be able to you know, make sure you're, you've got all the dirt and debris out of your, your cuts and wounds. And yeah. Being sterile, sterile conditions on your skin. Yeah. So those things, and you can buy them in bulk. They're pretty cheap. They end up to be about a buck 50 each and you can buy them in huge cases on Amazon. So I've, I've just got like two cases of them and they're, they're stored away. And, and every single emergency kit has got one of the surgical scrub brushes in it. Uh, because, you know, the sport that we're involved in, especially, you know, definitely high, high possibility of lacerations or road rash or, or those kind of things. You know, I've had huge lacerations that I've had to fix on myself for, for that kind of stuff. So, yeah. um, so that's definitely on the short list of, of stuff that's in my, my first aid kit. And the other one is an ACE bandage for, for breaks to be able to, um, you know, to stabilize bones, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you get a break. So that's, that's actually been a, a, a new addition to the first aid kit. I always figured I'd get improvised, but it's like, eh, might as well. It's not that much more to carry in my pack to have an, an ACE bandage to be able to, you know, wrap up somebody's leg or arm or something. Mm -hmm. in combination with like a bicycle pump or something else to kind of stabilize a break until you can get somebody out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark Jensen, thank you so much for giving us your knowledge and um, stay safe on the trails. Yes, indeed. Well, you know, it's, Getting out and getting exercise is, is, is the best thing for you. Men, yeah. Mental break, physical break, you know, getting some exercise, getting your heart rate up. So the more people we can get out, 
riding and walking and all the rest of it, the better, the better we will be. The Mendocino Coast cyclists are considering in the future doing some backwoods preparedness trainings. If you are interested, email rideon at mendocc.org and let them know to put you on their list. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month. You can listen to this and other archived shows by going to www.disquietmedia.blue or by going to www.kzyx.org. We would like to thank our guests, our intern, Ravel Gautier, for their work editing these interviews, Rich Colbertson and Alicia Bales of KZYX for their support and guidance, Gene Parsons for the banjo work, George Russell for his steel guitar work, and Across the Dimensions to the immortal Clarence White in the background on guitar. The views and opinions expressed are not that of the staff or management of any station that airs this show, but only those of ourselves and our guests. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge, and enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, what we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.